It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. When the Sitka Assembly meets tonight, it will consider a resolution in support of developing a public seaplane base on Japonski Island. The resolution, if approved, is a step toward receiving over $4 million in grant funding from the Federal Aviation Administration. In 2019, the city received a federal grant that funded environmental impact studies for the project. If the city receives the second wave of federal funding, the money will go toward purchasing land and designing the facility. Over $800,000 is budgeted for the land purchase, a parcel owned by the Alaska Department of Education, associated with Mount Edgecombe High School. In August, the State Board of Education authorized the commissioner to negotiate the sale of the land to the city. According to a memo from Public Works Director Michael Harmon, if the city receives the grant funding, the design, permitting, and bidding is expected to take around two years. Construction of the base is estimated to cost around $15 million. The Sitka Assembly meets tonight at 6 p.m. Raven News will broadcast the meeting live following Alaska News Nightly. A Sitka house sustained major damage after catching fire on Monday morning. Most of the damage, however, was limited to an attached garage. Cheryl Vastola had just returned from an errand shortly before 11 a.m. to her home in the 1300 block of Halibut Point Road when she noticed smoke behind garage windows. Fire Chief Craig Warren says Vastola's next move may have saved the house. Luckily, she did not open the door to the garage uh, she was getting ready to and saw the smoke through the window of the garage. And so she left it closed, which is the greatest thing. Uh, keeping the fire closed off as long as possible keeps it uh, from kind of that explosive growth because it doesn't get oxygen. It kind of gets uh, choked for air. Warren says Vastola's good judgment didn't end with leaving the garage door closed. She didn't have her cell phone with her. She actually had to go to the neighbors to call, which is another good move. Don't go into the house, even though that's not where the fire is. Warren says that just as firefighters arrived, the garage door failed and the fire took off, up the wall on the outside of the building. But it also created a large opening for firefighters to get water on the blaze, which was visible across Sitka Channel. It took a team of eight firefighters about five minutes to douse the flames, while Sitka police provided traffic control on Halibut Point Road. No one was at home at the time the fire started, except the family cat, who was safely rescued. Vastola's husband, Dave, says the garage appears to be a total loss, but the home itself suffered little damage. He told KCAW that only some bedroom curtains caught on fire, but otherwise the blaze remained confined on the other side of the wall in the garage. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Vastola says that he and his wife are touched by the outpouring of generosity in the aftermath of the fire. Due to possible damage to the electrical service, they may not be able to return home for a while, but they won't be homeless. We have our choice of about 50 places to stay, said Vastola. This Saturday marked the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. In Sitka, first responders gathered together in a public ceremony to commemorate the nearly 3,000 people who lost their lives that day. KCAW's Tosh Kimmel brings us this audio postcard from the ceremony. U.S. troops were killed in combat for a war that would last the next 20 years. What we saw first was horror followed by tragedy. 
incredible sense of loss. What rose out of that, of the ashes of those awful situations, was the true nature of this nation. So we're here to mourn the loss of our countrymen and the attack on our sovereignty pay tribute to and honor all those involved. We're also here today as a sign of pride. Well, we are part of an imperfect nation formed by imperfect men and women. With this ter terrible tragedy brought to light of the dust and the fires of that day, the heroes. In our darkest hours, saw businessmen, secretaries, soccer moms, shoulder to shoulder with police officers and firefighters. At their own peril, saving the lives of strangers, we saw ordinary travelers give their lives on behalf of others. So we're here today to remember those who lost their lives the tragedy of the attacks and the combat that followed. Thank you all for being here today. This concludes the uh, ceremony. That was the voice of Coast Guard Commander Brian McLaughlin speaking at a 9-11 memorial ceremony in Sitka on Saturday. Alaska's redistricting board recently drew new political boundaries that place Southeast's four sitting House members within two districts. That's because the new maps put two lawmakers' homes in different districts than they're currently in, in one case by less than a few hundred yards. That means that unless they want to move, Democratic and Independent House members would have to run against each other. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, the Republican majority panel's plan is not final and will be coming under scrutiny this fall. There was some relief when the draft redistricting maps were published last week because the size of Southeast's political delegation remained the same, four House members and two state senators for next year's election. U.S. Census data shows Southeast communities have either had very modest growth or lost population, while other parts of the state grew relatively quickly. The last go-around, Southeast lost a senator and a House member, which diminished its voice in the legislature. Representative Andy Story is a Democrat now in her second term, representing Juno's Mendenhall Valley. But the new maps would put her four-bedroom house in a neighboring district that's held by a party ally. To me, it is really suspect. One half of the street, um, my side, would be in the new downtown district, and the other half of the street would stay in the current district. It's normal for political boundaries to be redrawn every 10 years to follow trends with population shifts. But Representative Sarah Hannon, also a Juno Democrat, says the new lines on the map look deliberate. It's a funny little carve-out because the neighborhood that her house is in has two sides of the street, and they took only one side of the street. The draft maps also divide Ketchikan in a novel way. A zigzag line excludes Ketchikan independent Dan Ortez's three-bedroom home on South Tongas Highway. That would land him in a sprawling 630-mile outer coastal district that would run from the Canadian border all the way up to Yakutat in territory that's largely represented now by Sitka Democratic Representative Jonathan Christ Tompkins. 
The Alaska Redistricting Board put out a statement saying there had been some errors in the Ketchikan Gateway Borough that would be addressed when it reconvenes later this week. Representative Dan Ortez says that gives him some hope. It's my understanding that the Redistricting Board has called that an error and that they intend to correct that error at this upcoming meeting on Friday. That's my understanding. Alaska's constitution says district boundaries should be compact territory. That's an integrated socioeconomic area. But Ortez says carving out the predominantly Alaska native city of Saxman and the outskirts south of Ketchikan could lump these voters with a representative that might be hundreds of miles away. It's very problematic. It puts part of South Tongass and part of Saxman as a part of the West Coast district that goes all the way up to Yakutat. And, you know, that's just not in the best interests of the people who live on Revillagigedo Island, let's put it that way. Veteran Republicans involved in the redistricting process say shifting demographics made the new districts inevitable. Former state Republican chairman Randy Riedrich fronts a group calling itself Alaskans for Fair and Equitable Redistricting. There just wasn't enough population south of Juneau to build two districts under any shape. So we had to, to, to create the map that I was working on, we had to arrange to import the Yakutat population from the north. He says there wasn't any deliberate effort to exclude incumbents, but Riedrich says it made sense to carve out the city of Saxman from the Ketchikan district and include it with other Alaska Native communities to the northwest. I haven't even thought about who lives where, but we did carve out, in our using that term, we did select Saxman to be in the coastal district since it has uh, most of the other Alaska Native villages, and it has Sitka, which is the center of many other services, I thought he was justified to include it in the Maritime District. These maps are only drafts, and the courts often get involved following legal challenges. But it's shaping up to be an opening of a high-stakes political exercise that will play out through the November 10th deadline to settle political boundaries. Representative Andy Story, the Juno Democrat, says this process is too political. Three of the five members on the redistricting board are registered Republicans. My situation right now, trying to understand it, it's probably a good reason for why we should have a nonpartisan redistricting board. If the current maps are allowed to stand, it would shake up the political landscape in Southeast by forcing political allies to either contest each other in the 2022 election or uproot themselves. Representative Sarah Hannon says that's a tall order for part-time legislators. I am not a politically committed enough public servant to move to continue to represent a district. Which cynics might say could be exactly the point. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Bresnik. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.